Hebrews chapter 10. That's where we're going to be at today. Uh, We're taking a small break or a small detour uh, from the book of Matthew, uh, just because it's summer. Uh, I'm getting ready to um, be away on vacation. So I wanted to do, um, it's it's an aside, but it's not really. It's, It's a series called Church Matters. And that, that's, that's in two ways. Uh, church is significant and church is important. <laughs> okay, so it, it, church matters because it's significant and church is important uh, in that sense. So and today I want us to look at attention to the body of Christ. And what, I, what I'm doing is I'm just taking what we have in our bylaws as a church in that way and I'm trying to present what, we, what it even means to be a member here. What does it mean to be a part of the church in that sense? Okay, so that's, that's what I'm doing. That's why we're taking this kind of a hiatus from Matthew. And uh, I'm going to jump back and forth into Church Matters. It's going to kind of be my, if, I, if we need a break from our series, this is what we're going to go to for the next couple months, probably the next year. Okay, so uh, this is not going away, hopefully, anytime soon. Uh, Church Matters, um, that's what we're looking at. Hebrews chapter 10, I want us to look at verses 19 through 25, and uh, hopefully we can get through all that today. This is what God's Word says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, this word that we see in the book of Hebrews is a deeply encouraging word. And yet, Lord, at the same time, as much as it's an encouragement, it's a, it's a correction, it's a rebuke, it's a, it's a calling forth for us, Lord Jesus, to, to attend to your body, your church. So, Lord, help us to heed what you've said in your word. Give us the grace we need to to see it, to believe it, to trust it, and to live in light of it. Father, help me now. Give me the words to speak. Father, help me to put aside every, every distraction, everything that may hinder what you want to say now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. encourage you. I hope you have some notes there in front of you, because uh, we'll be referencing those uh, today. But Now, I, I think I've talked to most of you. I, I think we all can acknowledge the epidemic, uh, in, I'll call it an epidemic, in the church uh, today. I think all of us would look and see people in our lives who claim to be a Christian and who don't, go, don't attend to the body of Christ. And I want us to consider what that means, why that is significant. For, for 2,000 years, the church has gathered 
in, in every local expression, in different ways, in, house, in houses, in buildings, in, in huge, huge cathedrals. The church has gathered. Even what, listen to one early church father. This is what he even says. He goes as far, and I don't necessarily agree with a lot of what he says, but I think this is a quippy statement that I think is helpful. He says, no one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother. I want you to hear that again. No one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother. Now, there's lots of implications to that. I don't want to say that just attending church in any I never want to present that just being a part of a church in that way somehow inherits salvation, which I think was, is what Cyprian's saying there. I'm not saying that. But I think it is helpful that he at least acknowledges that a person who has the church as mother in that sense b- believes that God is father in that sense. And I want us to consider what do we think of those who are, who are outside the gathering, those who, who claim to be a Christian and who are outside the gathering. I want us to consider, look down at verse 19, what he says. Now he says in verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Now anytime, I, I want to stop here. Anytime we ever see in a text the word therefore, we need to pause. We need to see what it's there for, okay? It's very simple. Anytime you see the word therefore, don't just keep reading and be like, well, I'll figure out what he's talking about because he just made a huge argument before this. And I'll just summarize it very briefly. It's that the whole Old Testament was like a shadow, that the entirety of your Old Testament is a shadow of the substance which is Christ. And he says, you can actually see it in, in verse 1 of, of uh Chapter 10, if you turn back maybe a page, um, he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, that is Christ, and he says that shadow can do nothing. And then he says in verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's why he says the Old Testament is like a shadow of the reality which is Christ. Now, I want to present to you, uh, and you've probably seen this before, I've probably referenced it even here before, but I want to pay mind to it again. It's this idea of the temple. Now, to a Jew, and there should be a, a diagram up there for you, to a Jew, you would have understood, just even referencing the temple, you would have understood what was going on here. But, the, but there are three main elements, I want to focus on three main elements up here, it is, and I'll start with the porch, going left, right to left for you. Uh, start with the porch. The porch was the place where actually likely is where Jesus would have cleansed. So we know stories of that. This is where Jews and Gentiles alike were able to to be. The holy place then would have been like the sanctuary. It would have been the place where a lot of the, um, like not, not the sacrifices would have been made, but like incense would have been burned. But then there's this third element. And this is what the author of Hebrews is going to start picking up on. And it's this idea of the holy of holies. And if you remember, if you're, if you're attentive to your Bible reading, you know that this inner part is the part that God actually dwelt with the people of Israel. It, it says that, the, the, as, as, I, or as Jeremiah read this morning, um, it says that the altar was actually brought in, or the, the tabernacle, um, not the tabernacle, goodness, the Ark of the Covenant was brought in to the Holy of Holies. And God actually dwelt there in the Holy of Holies. And every year, once a year, this is what would happen for the Jew Everyone would stand outside, and once a year, one priest, the high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the altar with blood. Every year, it was the day, and if you know a Jew, that you know of the day Yom Kippur. Anybody ever heard of that? 
the day Yom Kippur, I think most of us have. It's, it's what's called the, the high day, the day of atonement. And even to this day, if you know a Jew, they will actually be very, very somber on this day. Because they believe on Yom Kippur, the day, of, the day of atonement in that way, it's the day that all of their sins, you've got to picture people all around the temple, that was the day that their sins were being atoned for. So it's a very, very somber day. It's a day that's, uh, that's, that's very somber, it's very um, bleak in that sense. But the priest would go into that Holy of Holies, and he would offer sacrifice. Now, again, I'll give you another little piece to it. There was actually a veil, that, what's called a veil, or we would call it maybe like a huge curtain, that stood between the Holy of Holies and the, the holy place in that sense. Now, I give you all of that, not as just weird historical facts, but you need to have that all in your mind as you hear what he's about to tell us, because it's so significant. Hear what he says in verse 12. Now, just read it. You don't have to turn there. He says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And that's significant because the author's saying, he's saying, he went in. He's that high priest who went into the holy places the, holy, the, whole, the high priest in that temple scene would never have been able to sit down. He continually was walking because he continually had sacrifices to do. But he says in verse 12, Christ has offered for one time and then sat down, something the priest could never do. Or he says in verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all, time, all times those who are brought near. By a single offering. And that's his whole point. All verses 1 through 18, that's his whole point, is that Jesus is the greater fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was like a, lo- was like a shadow. And that, that substance came in and has offered for one time sacrifice for sins. And then it leads him to say in verse 19, here's his concluding thoughts. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... So you see, you see how he says, all of this is true. Now, because of this, here's what I'm about to tell you. Here's your exhortations, okay? We need to have that in our brains because that's very important. Now he says, now notice what he says. Now, therefore, brother, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Okay, so he's saying Christ has died. Christ has been risen. And he says, because of that, we can enter now that holy of holy places. And I want you to see, if you're taking notes there, that first point, which is Christ's sacrifice invites sinners to come in faith. Christ's sacrifice invites sinners to come in faith. And hear, hear him again, what he says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, do you hear what he does? You remember that old text? Can you pull up that temple illustration again? I'm sorry. I should have put it in there several times. So hear what he says again. He says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Do you, do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying, once we were only able to be out here <laughs> or out on the porch. But he says, now, me and you, by the blood of Christ, can enter to the place the holy of holies, the very presence of God. He says, me and you can actually come near to that point. And then he not only says that, but he says, no, notice verse 20, what he says, how we can do it. By the new and living way that he opened to us, through the curtain, through the veil, which is his flesh. Do you hear that? 
He says, he says, so I want you to see if you're taking notes there, Jesus tore the veil. And I want you to see, Jesus tore the veil is, is kind of vague in that way. The veil was that curtain, like we saw, between the Holy of Holies and between the Holy of Holies and everything else. And that would have actually been, if you were a Jew and hearing this, it would be a very somber reality. So you're telling me the place that I've once stood and trembled at, you're now telling me I can come into. But notice how. Notice how he says we can do that. By the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain, which is his flesh. The veil that acted as a barrier now acts as the way that we come in. Do you hear that? I hope you you can see that even through this. That the veil that once kept us out is now the thing through Christ's flesh torn for us that acts as a door. And then he goes on and he says, and since, verse 21, if if you're following along, he says, and since we have a great high priest or great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So I want you to see there, so Jesus tore the veil. I want you to see also that Jesus, our great high priest. Jesus, our great high priest. Now the high priest, like I said, was the one who would enter every year into that holy of holies. And he would go in and he would offer sacrifice for the people And he says, we are no longer held out of the holy holies. We are actually invited in. And his encouragement to us is verse 22. Notice what he says again in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So so what once kept me and you out, he says, now come in. Come on in. Jesus has, has so atoned for me and you that we can actually dwell with God again. The thing that was meant to be like an Eden-like picture of God dwelling, we have been cleansed, so now we can come near. I want you to notice, I loved how the uh, NET put it. It skips just a couple of slides, Brandon, down down just a couple, but he says, he says, let us, this this is the NET's version, he says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in the assurance that faith brings. Okay? So you shouldn't have assurance because, well, I'm, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough. It's the assurance that comes from faith. Because we believe what Jesus has done, we can actually enter into the holy places. Christ's sacrifice invites sinners to come in faith. And you know what this means? I'll, I'll just circle up here for a second and draw some application for us. Brothers and sisters, great confidence can be had for people who come to Christ. We know that we will be received. We trust that we will be received, not because we've tried hard enough, not because we've cleaned ourselves up, not because of anything in us, but because we've turned and trusted, because Christ has done it. I love what then J.C. Ryle he says he gives some encouragement to parents at least, and I think to t- children can learn from this as well. He says this, he says, tell your children of the duty and privilege of going to church and joining in the prayers of the congregation. Tell them that whatever the Lord's peop- whenever the Lord's people are gathered, there the Lord-, Lord Jesus is present in a special way, 
and that those who are absent must expect, like the Apostle Thomas, to miss out on a blessing. Tell of the, imp- of the importance of hearing the word of God preached, that it is, God ordain- God, it is God's ordained way of converting, sanctifying, and building up the souls of men. How much more true for me and you. When we gather together, what we're doing is we're displaying outwardly that we can actually gather into the Holy of Holies. Never let this become a, a mild sentiment that when we gather as the people of God, we gather to meet God. We don't gather to meet some, some, some mediator, some extra, some other thing. We gather to meet God. We get to come into the holy of holy places. Now, that doesn't mean we come into the church, but when the people, the church are the people of God. So when the people gather, that is where God is in that sense. I want you to notice, though, what else he goes on to say. So Christ's sacrifice invites sinners to come in faith, but Christ's sacrifice gives a sure hope. I want you to notice that. Christ's sacrifice gives a sure hope. Now, notice what he goes on to say in verse 23. He says, Let us hold unwavering to the hope that we confess, for the one who made the promise is trustworthy. Now, notice what he says there in verse 23. He says that the hope, hope that we confessed, that's the thing, or the hope is the confession. So when we confess our faith, what we're doing is we're telling others of the hope that we have. One, one author said that the content of the confession of the, and the hope are the same. So let me say that again. The content of the confession and the hope are the same. And I want you to see that the confession is without wavering. So you're taking notes there. I want to consider both parts of it. Confession without wavering. When the Christian confesses his faith, he does not confess himself. I have a problem with many testimonies that I often hear. And you've probably heard, if you just listen, you'll often hear testimonies that say, I did this, I did that, me, 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 me. And actually it's some of the worst testimonies that actually exalt man worse than any other ones. I did this drug, I did that drug, I did this drug, but Jesus saved me. So it's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Our confession, when we confess Christ, we're confessing, I was a sinner, this is who I was, but he has saved me. It's the confession without wavering. He says again in verse 23, let us hold unwavering to the hope that we confess, for the one who made the confession, is, who made the promise is trustworthy. So I want you to see that it's grounded in Christ's faithfulness. It's grounded in Christ's faithfulness. So it's confession without wavering, but it's grounded in Christ's faithfulness. We confess Christ not because we are faithful, because that wouldn't be good news. If I said to you, uh, just confess Christ, because if you don't do it without wavering, then you have no hope. That's not good news. He says, though, notice what he says again, let us hold unwavering to the hope that we confess, for the one who made the promise is trustworthy. We confess that he who promised is faithful and trustworthy. J.C. Ryle again, to, to, parent, for, to parents about their children, but also children, children can glean from this as well. He says, do not allow them to grow up with a habit of making vain excuses for not coming 
Make them clearly understand that so long as they're under your roof, it is the rule of your house for everyone in good health to honor the Lord in the Lord's day. And that you believe that the healthy person who refuses to go to church in the Lord's day will bring great harm to his soul. Then he goes on and says, Do not be discouraged because your children do not see the full value of church and the Lord's Supper. Just train them to have a habit of regular attendance. Set it before their minds as high, holy, and solemn duty. And believe me, the day will very likely come when they will bless you for your efforts. I think that is so true. That is such a, a good admonition to hear for us today. And if this is true of parents and it's true for our children, may it be true of everyone else in that sense. And then he gives one, one final admonition, and I want you to consider what he says. So we should, we should enter because Christ has called us to come in faith. We can enter because he's given us the sure hope. But I want you to see what those two things do for us. It's this third point, is that Christ's sacrifice demands our fellowship in love. It's that Christ's sacrifice demands our fellowship in love. Notice what he goes on to say. And he says in verse 24, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I notice again in verse 24 when he says, he says, and let us consider. He's not saying, he's, he's, he's literally saying, let us be concerned about. Me and you, me and you, because of what Christ has done, should be, we ought to be concerned about the things he's about to mention, which are, considering how to stir up one another to love. Notice what it doesn't say in verse 24. Let me read it again. And let us consider how to stir one another up. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say it's the pastor's job to make sure everyone's at church week to week. It's the pastor's job to make sure everyone's attending. Or it doesn't say, I need the pastor to tell me to get my butt in church. I can't tell you the number of people I meet in this town. You know it. Everyone knows it here. This is not a rare thing that I'm about to say. They'll say something to the effect of, I meant to be there. Or, yeah, pastor, he tells... I met a, guy, met a guy a couple months ago who said, yeah, pastor comes every once in a while and he, he kicks my butt and I get in church. <laughs> and I chuckled at it and I'm like, why did he have to do that? I wanted to say, like, why did he have to do that to you? Why? Like, that's a very miserable experience in that way. Like, every time you see pastor, he's here to kick my butt to get me in church. That's unfortunate. That, I mean, like, I hope, I hope my interactions with you all are not that way. Like, every time I see you, like, get, get back here. Like, it's, it's not that way. Notice what he says. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love. He doesn't say, hey, someone should be back behind you, nagging you, provoking you. Actually, me and you should be doing that to each other. Like, do you, do you see the difference there? How, how, how that even flips on its head. Now, I want you to notice, too, that word in verse 24, that word for stir up. Now, there's, there's a bunch of different words you could use there. But in other contexts, that word is used actually as a sharp disagreement or a sharp argument, actually. That, that word, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another. It's actually a sharp, in other contexts, it's a sharp dif- differing of opinions. But that's not what it is here. I would actually put the word, rather than stir up, we should probably put the word provoke one another to love and good works. 
I don't know if you've ever had the experience of playing basketball, especially like five-on-five basketball, maybe, maybe even one-on-one basketball. But the difference of what Paul's calling us to here and the difference of what we want to do is, is like this. If you've ever played zone defense, zone defense is like we all have a little area and we're all just in agreement where my area is, okay? But man defense says, this is my guy and I'm going to pursue him. He's not getting by me. He's not getting, and we all are in agreements. That's your guy, this is your guy, this is your guy. Now go after him. <laughs> and that word for provoking is the same word that I would use that we would want to use in man-to-man defense. That's your guy. <laughs> go get him. <laughs> and so the church, in that sense, should be ones who look at each other and say, you're my guy, and I'm not going anywhere. I had a friend one time tell me, and I, I tell him too, and it's, it's in, the, in love, the, the, and it's the dearest sense of the word. And he would tell me, like, if you'd ever fall into sin or start falling away from Christ, I'd punch you in the face. And I remember thinking, like, that's kind of rude. But what he means by that is the most loving thing possible. He means, if you ever fall away or if you ever run away from the church, I'm coming for you. <laughs> like, when you see me in public, it's not going to be, oh, well, what's, what's new? Yeah, oh, you left your wife? Oh, oh, well, that's unfortunate. No, I love you. I'm coming for you. <laughs> I'm going to provoke you to love one another. It's like Proverbs, Proverbs 27, 17. We quote this a lot. Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. That's what he has in mind here. So stirring up to love. Right, you could even put there provoking each other to love. It is necessary that we love one another with the kind of tenacious love that says, I love you so much, I'm going to provoke you to love others. I love you so much, I'm going to work hard to make you love God more and love others more. Oh, you don't like, and for introverts, I always chuckle with introverts, poor people. Poor people when they engage a Christian in the church who's an extrovert. Because the extrovert's saying, come, I want to be with you. The introvert's like, I think I want to be with you. I love you, but, but it's a little harder for me. <laughs> this is why we need one another in that sense. This does not mean that we're rough with each other. But what it means is we're utterly committed to one another. So it's stirring up to love. It's also stirring up to good works. Stirring up to good works. We provoke each other not to anger like the rest of the world does. We provoke each other to good deeds. Do you hear how different that is? I love what Jay Adams says here. He says, Congregations in which believers encourage and stimulate one another to love and good works will have little difficulty with members forsaking the gathering. I want to say that one more time. Congregations in which believers encourage and stimulate one another to love and good works will have little difficulty with members forsaking the gathering. When a person says, I want to be a member at GLBC, I want to be a member here at this church, they're saying, I'm in. They're saying, I'm your guy. You're my guy. You're saying to all the other members, you're my guy, you're my guy, you're my guy, and girl too. You're my girl. I'm going to be here with you. I am so committed to this local body that I will provoke you to love others and and do that. Listen to what the book of Acts. People talk about going back to the New Testament church. You want to hear what the first New Testament church did? First 3,000 believers, like like Jeremiah read this morning. And they devoted themselves 
to the apostles' teaching, and for us, that's not me. I'm not the apostle. The apostles' teaching is the word of God, okay? So they devoted themselves not to pastor. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what was the other piece there? Verse, verse 42, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread, or that's eating dinner, literally, and the prayers. And I just want to pause here in this moment and acknowledge, maybe you've realized that you have been playing zone defense for far too long. What, what do we do about the person who's been playing zone defense their entire life as the church? And I want to encourage you, if you find yourself falling into a zone defense mentality of, ah, that'll, that's his guy. That's not my guy. Ah, whatever. We as the church can come back to Christ, like he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we can come in. We can seek each other's forgiveness. We can run back to him, and we can run back to our faith family, and we can seek their forgiveness, and we love them. We'll love them the same way we loved them before. Now notice what he goes on to say in verse 44. And he says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is not Christian welfare, okay? But this is people saying, I don't even have the means to meet your need, but I'm going to sell stuff that I would not normally sell to meet your need. That's how much I love you. And they go on, and he says, And day by day, attending temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And now notice, 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 even their evangelistic strategy. Who did all this, though? And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved, saying the whole time, those guys are weird. Look at how they love one another. Look at how they care for one another. May that be the same said that is of us in that way. So Christ's sacrifice demands our fellowship and love. And that fellowship is done in stirring up in love and stirring up in good works. But it also is in prioritizing the gathering. Prioritizing the gathering. Which leads him to say in verse 25, notice what he says in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, two things I want to draw mind to here. The first is that word neglecting. Now, that word neglecting could also be rendered abandoning, forsaking, deserting. Picture, picture, if you would, a family that has left behind a little child. That's the kind of abandoning or deserting, or maybe a little child, rather, a little child that has left the family in that way. That's the kind of abandoning, forsaking, or deserting we have in our mind. Now, in the first century, now notice what he says. I think this is really interesting. He says, as is the habit of some. So we're not out of the first century. We're still in like less than 100 years since Jesus died. And he says, it is the habit of some to abandon the gathering. So we shouldn't look at our own day and be like, man, it's really weird. People, people claim to be Christians. They never come to church. Paul would want to say, as is the habit of some, <laughs> it's the habit of some. Now, they would have abandoned the church, likely, not due to the reasons we do. 
their reasons would have been for threat for their life. They're gathering down here at this little church, and oh yeah, by the way, the people in town are now trying to kill you because you attend that little church. That's a lot different than what we experience. Let me give you some of the typical reasons people leave churches in our day. It was inconvenient. It was irrelevant. I didn't really see the point in it. It was unnecessary. (laughs) And what does each of those answers do? What do they they reveal? Very simply, I would say this. Arrogance. Utter arrogance. Arrogance in thinking they don't need the body of Christ like other Christians do. Arrogance in assuming that Jesus will just receive them because they're nice enough. Arrogance in presuming that because they said a prayer or walked an aisle, they will be received. You go and talk to your neighbors who are not attending anywhere, and you hear the answers they give. I know we all have them. I have family members. I have friends. I have so many in my life, even in my own life. If this is true of me, how much more so for you? Instead of having a confident profession of faith and hope, they're going to come near and they're going to see what he says here just in a minute. But the person who first drifts from the Word of God will one day begin to doubt the Word of God, which will lead them to become dull to the Word of God, which will one day lead them to despising the Word of God. Let me say those four Ds one more time. The first person who, when when they drift from the Word of God... They begin to doubt the Word of God and then become dull to the Word of God. And then ultimately they despise the Word of God. Now notice what he goes on to say in verses 26 through 29. I think this is one of the most sharp, one of the sharpest warnings in the book of Hebrews. Now now he, he says here in verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved for the, by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant which was, by which he was sanctified? and has outraged the spirit of grace. Now notice what he says in that last verse. I think it's interesting. I'll draw mine to it. He says, um, yeah, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God? In our day, to trample underfoot the Son of God is to not only neglect the gathering, but it's also to neglect primarily the Word of God. If I just said to my wife all the time, my wife spoke to me, let's just pretend she spoke to me and she'd say things like, honey, honey, when you go to the store, can you, uh, can you get some milk? And I'd walk out the door and I'm like, walk out the door, didn't, didn't hear you. Oh, sorry about that. I didn't, I didn't hear you. Now, what if I did that one day? That'd be unfortunate. It'd be like, uh, honey, pay more attention to me. Okay, sure. What about two days? I did the same thing. Honey, honey, on your way to work, get some milk. There I go out the door. How about a month later of that? How about two months later? How about three months later? (laughs) It's like, this is the 18th month. Get the milk. And I'm just like, "Ah, I I didn't hear you. If we do that to Christ, what what he says here in verse verse 29 is we're trampling underfoot again the Son of God. Is we profane the blood of the covenant. 
You remember that holy of holies? For the Christian, the one who gathers, the one who, who seeks the body of Christ, and me and you are the body of Christ if we're connected to him. So for, who, for them who neglect the body of Christ, he says that person has trampled underfoot the Son of God. I want to ask just a real brief question. How should we think of that person? Very simply, as 1 John would tell us, 1 John 2.19 says this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not all, that they were not, but they went out that it might become plain they all are not of us. Now the point here is not to say if someone leaves our church and goes to another church, we neglect them. That's not what we're saying here. But what we are saying is the person who leaves our body and goes nowhere, which is the vast majority of the town we live in, we should warn them. We should warn them even with Hebrews 10 that says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved for the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God? I, I just encourage us not to, not to continue the deception that goes on in that way. So, so that's, that's the prioritizing of the gathering. I want to give you one more piece, and here's the positive aspect of it. It's encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. Now, the word there, again, for encouraging one another is, is the same word we saw two weeks ago with, with that word comfort in 2 Corinthians 1. Parakaleo. It's that same word. It's to literally paraclete one another. It's literally to comfort one another, to encourage, to lift one's head. And notice the reason why. Notice what he says in verse 26. He says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now that word, the day, it should be capitalized, I think, in most of your Bibles. That day just simply represents the day getting, that's drawing nearer to Christ. That day will be the day that Jesus returns And that day is the day, he says, as you see that day drawing near, what should you do? Should you just like burrow into a bunker in your house, which most of our neighbors, if you talk to them, have already started doing? They've started burrowing into their bunker? No, no, no. That's not the Christian response. The Christian response is never just to say, to sulk and be sullied. The day, Jesus is coming any day now. I buried a bunker in my house. That's not the answer. Notice what he says. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we see the day of Jesus drawing near, which I'm telling you, it's drawing near. Look around. We press into each other. Notice the apostolic logic. Because lawlessness will be increased, encourage each other. Because lawlessness will be increased, comfort each other. Because lawlessness will be increased, pour your lives into each other. That's his whole point here. And do you see how contrary this is to the culture we live in? Can you just look around and see the kind of half-hearted, flaky commitment that people have to to the church? And again, that shouldn't cause us to despair. That should cause us to do what? To press in all the more. I don't know if you've ever played, like I said, if you've ever played five-on-five basketball, we should be calling one another out. Get your man. Your man keeps scoring. (laughs) Go get him. (laughs) Go get him. Stop playing lax. Get up on him. Play him. Listen, Listen to just one more warning, even from Scripture. Revelation 2, he says this. 
He says, I know your works. Now, this is, this is Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus. And they lived in a lawless society. But I want you to notice what he says in, in Revelation 2, 24. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Now, notice all the good things we could say of this church. This church is discerning. This church hates evil. And then he says in verse 3, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. There is so much to be commended here. Me and you, brothers and sisters, should never forget number four, verse four. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. When we see the day of Jesus drawing near, don't don't abandon the love we have at first, which that's the love for Christ, that's the love for one another, and to love Christ is to love Christ's body, okay? So don't, don't abandon that. And he says, provoke one another. Push into each other. Provoke one another to good works. And provoke each other to love. I want you to see, if you get nothing else from today, just get the top statement at the top. Christ's sacrifice has opened the way for sinners to come in faith with the hope of full forgiveness. The outworking of this redemption is the call to love one another by prioritizing the gathering and stirring one another up to obedience. Brothers and sisters, the day of Jesus, just like Paul thought, is drawing near. And if you can't see it, the lawlessness that is in our own day is worse than the generation before us. They'd say the same thing of the next day. We'll say the next thing of the next generation. Press into each other. Provoke each other to love and good works. I want us to turn now to take communion. And I want us to do so, though, in, in hearing, again, what the author of Hebrews says. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain that is through his flesh, or which would be the, blood, the body of Christ broken for sinners, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean of an evil, evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And I, want, I, want to, I want you to hear the admonition of Paul in another place. I want to encourage you, I, this cup and this bread is for Christians. This cup and this bread is not for unbelievers. If you are not clinging to the body of Christ, if you're not clinging to Christ in that sense, don't take, don't eat it. Let it pass. It's okay. Listen to what he says. This is, this is what he warns. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Jesus. Okay? So that's the person who is not discerned, am I a Christian or not? Or maybe they're living as a Christian, but they're not at the same time. He says that's the person who's living in an unworthy manner, the one who's not clinging to Christ by faith. He says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, I would argue as well in verse 29 when he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body can also be extended to, if we're not connected to the body, we shouldn't eat. Don't, don't eat in that sense. So connect one oneself to the body, or maybe even today decide I'm going to be connected to the body from here, here forth. And then take. 
Take the cup. Take the cup together. So if the deacons, if you guys could come forward, we'll, we'll pass the elements.